Well, we turn back to the chapter we were reading a moment ago in Malachi, looking at uh, the last verse of chapter 2 and then the first six verses of chapter 3. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or... <laughs> Where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And so on. Now we continue to look through and study the book of Malachi together in our midweek meetings. And as you know, the... The nation of the Jews after the uh, exile, after they have returned from exile, have fallen now into a slothful state. They had the twin witnesses of Haggai and Zechariah who ushered in a time of repentance and reformation. But by the time now of Malachi, that reformation has lapsed into a dead formalism. The priests... Well, they still do their priestly work in one sense. They still offer their sacrifices, but they do so without any heart. The nations still attend, the people still attend to the worship, but they do so in pride. They do so believing they are contributing something to God, and therefore he ought to bless them. They aren't sorrowing over their sins. They're complaining that God is not keeping his side of the bargain. And so the pattern of this book then is fixed, whereby the prophet brings the accusations of God against the people of God. And then they attempt to justify it or deny it or uh, demand some explanation for it. And the Lord shows them their guilt. This pattern was followed in the first part of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2 over the priests in that main section. And then... In the rest of, rest of chapter 2 for the people in the section that we have just completed last time. Now here in our section tonight we find it begins as we see from verse 17 of chapter 2. We're taking it with another accusation leveled against them. They have wearied the Lord with their words. Now we want to pause at that point, just for a moment. You wearied the Lord. What does that mean? What do you think that means? You wearied the Lord. Can the Lord be weary? It's not a time, first place, to try and explain away these words with a flash of our Theological acumen. It's time to feel the weight of these words. Perhaps the thief on the cross would say to us, as those who are under the same accusation and condemnation. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. What a thing to be said of people who profess to be God's people. You have wearied the Lord. Wearied the one who is the Almighty. Wearied Him. 
We are the one who is the creator God. Who with the word of his power says it. And it happens. And there was light. It cannot be possible. Surely Malachi is making a mistake. When he says you have wearied the Lord. Well we know it is biblical. It is given to express the fact that Israel, God's people, have treated God with utter disdain. Such that were he not who he is, he would have cast them off utterly. The action is on their part. This is what they have done. It's not necessarily saying the Lord is weary. The Lord cannot be tired. But their action is a wearisome action. Their behavior, their talk, their disdain is a wearisome talk and disdain. And if God were not God, he would have cast them off. That's how the section comes to a great conclusion in verse 6. But I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. They weary the Lord. What can we expect them but to be destroyed? But no, because he doesn't change. The whole of the blessing of this book and of this section particularly rests upon the Lord's changeless purposes for his people. As much as we had at the beginning of the book. How much of the book rests upon the Lord's changeless love for his people. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord. Yet I loved Jacob and hated Esau. God has not changed. God does not change. God cannot change. His covenant stands with them. And for that reason and that reason alone. They are not to be consumed. They are to be blessed. This is the way our God is. Blesses the unworthy. The unlovely. What is the blessing? Oh it is the blessing of all. It is the coming of the Lord. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Well, this evening I want us to consider this short section really up to verse 6 of chapter 3 as the Lord will enable us. First of all, the preparation for Christ's coming. The preparation for the coming of Christ. Now, this passage here rests upon another well-known part of scripture you know it yourselves in Isaiah chapter 40 there's going to be a few verses verses 3 to 5 the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness prepare ye the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed 
and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Here in Isaiah, the prophet calls the nation to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. They are to actively seek to, to remove every obstacle, to get everything spick and span and ready. And of course, it predictably applies to their own hearts, to their own lives. To be ready against that day, the day of the coming of the glory of the Lord, when all flesh shall see his glory. Malachi knows these words, knows what Isaiah said, knows what the prophecy of Isaiah 40 referred to. And he is confident enough, he understands it, to base his own prophecy here upon these words. Only there's a subtle change. From the people to prepare themselves, we are told instead of a messenger whom the Lord will send ahead. And this messenger will prepare the way. The people were to prepare it in Isaiah. But in Malachi, it's the messenger who goes before him who prepares the way. Not yet the messenger of the covenant, which is a particular messianic title that comes later in the verse. This is the forerunner. Another, this messenger, who prepares the way for the messianic figure who follows in the prophecy. Now is there some sort of tension of things going wrong? Has Malachi changed what Isaiah said? Is it a contradiction? Well, of course not in the word of God. They are the same and I think they resolve best like this. The preparation for the coming of Messiah, according to Isaiah, is pictured as a, a great work of engineering where they are laying this new, beautiful, smooth, straight, level highway. Across the plains of Judea, it will just be a striking highway and roadway making the straight path to Jerusalem. The rough places, they'll be made smooth. The valleys will be filled and raised up to level them out. The craggy peaks will be brought low and flattened. What you're left with is a good roadway fit to host the whole entourage and train of the kingly Messiah in all his dignity and majesty as he makes his way to his throne in Jerusalem. The idea is that God's people, of course, not just the, the geography, but God's people must be prepared for the coming of Messiah. They must be Fit to host the magnificent Messiah in his dignity and majesty. And that begins in the hearts of the people of God. It's a call really then for national repentance and individual repentance and faithfulness to God. That's the call of Isaiah before Messiah comes. But when Messiah came, what did we find? Israel was hardly in, a, in, a, in the midst of a, a gripping reformation and revival. Religion is dominated by two competing groups, each with their 
massive failings. The Sadducees denying the resurrection. The Pharisees with their dead orthodoxy. But formalism, legalism. Stifling the life out of the religion of Jehovah. What will the Lord do? Well, Malachi knew. The Lord will send his messenger beforehand. And John the Baptist came. And John the Baptist didn't just come. He came with a particular mission. What was that John did? He preached the baptism of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message again and again. He beat across it. Repentance in this walk of life, in that walk. Repent if you're a soldier. Repent if you're a a Pharisee. Repent whoever you might be. He has had no fear or favor. Herod has him in jail. Repent for taking a woman who you have no right to take. Repent. A stirring voice that John had. Rousing the nation to confess their sins. And to wait upon the Lord. And that's why when John the Baptist is asked to explain who he is. And what he is doing. How did he do it? In John 1.23. He said I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As said the prophet Isaiah. He quoted Isaiah and said that's what I am. I'm what Isaiah was talking about. One of the commentators suggests that he went in the wilderness and did his ministry there because the wilderness gave him all the abundant natural illustration of the state of Israel. Barren. A wilderness. John saw his ministry as a fulfillment of Isaiah 40. And so did Malachi. Malachi 400 years before John was born, saw that the forerunner would be the one who would turn the hearts back, who would call the nation to repentance. And the nation was roused to repent. We read in the, in the New Testament, it seemed that the whole country was going out to John, teeming people around the Jordan as he was baptizing, all seeking repentance. And this mark, the nation was stirred And prepared for the Messiah. The preparation for his coming. Secondly, the location for his coming. Now you know that the ministry of Christ took place across Judea and Galilee. Especially in Galilee. But the temple was always a fixed place where Christ would return to the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple at key stages in the ministry of Christ the temple was marked and blessed with the presence of the Lord Jesus at his circumcision at that Passover when he was 12 years old how he had to be about his father's business At the beginning of his ministry, when he cleansed the temple, when he stood up and cried in John 7.37, in that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, 
saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That was in the precincts of the temple. Throughout his ministry, when he taught there, at the close of his ministry, when he again cleansed the temple, in the final days even, in the immediate precursors to the crucifixion, he went daily into the temple and taught the people before retiring at night out to Bethany again. The temple was indeed the place that Christ came to literally and physically. It was in so many ways the focus of his ministry. Which temple was it? Now certainly it had been renovated and aggrandized by Herod. But it was the same, the very same temple that the priests of Malachi's day were ministering in. And where the people were bringing their offerings to it. It was the same place, the same actual spot upon the earth. That building that saw so much half-hearted worship from the people of God, from the priests of God, lackluster service rendered, would yet host the Lord Almighty. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. That takes us thirdly to the identity of the one who came. Let's think about who this is particularly. Because this is the crux of it all, isn't it? Described by Malachi. Who is it? I will send my messenger, John the Baptist. And he shall prepare the way before me. Before me. The one who comes to his temple is the speaker of the chapter, not Malachi, but God. God himself. Malachi believed that the Messiah who would come would be divine. He prophesied the divinity of the Christ. The one who comes to the temple is the speaker of the chapter. And he is also the Lord. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Now you can see uh, from your translation there that Lord is not here in capitals. Not indicating the underlying divine name of God, Jehovah. But it is the Lord, that is Adonai. But look at what is said of this one who is the Lord. Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. To his temple. No mere man would ever say the temple of God was his temple. Malachi knew and gave to the Jews the promise that their Messiah would be their God would be Jesus Christ himself. That is how he is identified as divine. But then he bears also this. He is the messenger of the the covenant. The Lord, me, the messenger of the covenant. They are all the same person. They are all descriptions of who is coming, who is this One, he is the messenger of the covenant. The earlier messenger of the verse is honoured 
with being the forerunner of Christ. John the Baptist had an honoured position. Christ acknowledged that. Among those born of a woman had not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. But here is the messenger of the covenant. That is the one who will be able to unfold and explain and expound the relationship that God is binding himself to with his people, the covenant relationship. He will be the messenger of all that. This one will carry with him in his arrival, in his incarnation, in his work of arriving, he will carry with him the explanation of the age-old dilemma that Satan thought would scupper any hope for mankind. How can God dwell with sinners? God promised to make a people his people. They shall be my people. I shall be their God. That was the covenant formula. How can it be done? God is holy, infinitely holy. Man is sinful, filthily sinful. How can God dwell with man? The messenger of the covenant. That title tells us that he is the one who will be able to answer the question. He will give the definitive answer to the conundrum of God's grace and blessing and favour to sinful man. He will hold the key. He alone is the messenger of the, com- of the covenant. He is divine. The temple is his. He is the Lord. And the confirming and explaining of the covenant relationship between God and sinners. That will define his coming into the world. That will be the centerpiece of it all. How can God enter into covenant with men? This messenger is the very, the bearer of the covenant. He is the founder of the covenant. He is the accomplisher of this covenant. He's not a messenger of the covenant as a message boy sent off for an errand. He's not like a, like a, a, a pigeon carrier sent to carry a message. But of no real significance in the scheme of it. No. He is the messenger. He is the proclaimer of the covenant. He is the guarantor of the covenant. He is the seal in his own blood of the restored relationship that he is establishing between God and man. It is a grand title that he has given here. It is a wonderful, wonderful descriptor of who is coming to the temple. Who is this figure? He is the messenger of the covenant. If you need to know what it is to be in relationship with God, he is the one who will show you. He is the one who will explain to you. He is the one who will give to you that relationship for yourself. And notice the emphatic way that it is put. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the master of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come saith the Lord of hosts, he shall come. They might doubt it. In verse 17, they were saying, where is the God of judgment? 
doubted no more. He shall come. He shall come indeed. And here we see most clearly, of course, our blessed Lord, our Saviour, our King, Jesus Christ. He is the messenger of the covenant still for his people. Who else can take the scriptures and from these scriptures and these pages expound in them the things concerning himself? No one else can do that. Who else can make our hearts burn within us as he opens it to us by the way? Who else can make true all the promises of Jehovah, all the prophecies of Scripture? Who can fulfill them in a few years of his lifetime? Who can make them all yea and amen but Christ Jesus? Who can take these great and wonderful and massive promises and hold them in the palm of his hand and complete them? And fulfill them and affirm them and realize them and accomplish them. But Christ, who else could ever bear the title messenger of the covenant? It is not a mean title. It is not a lowly title. It is a lordly title. The Lord shall come to his temple. And at his temple, he is in every way the messenger of the covenant. It's a title, we are sure, in which our Lord glories. And which he loves to hear from the lips of his people. That Christ to you is the only one who can explain to you and satisfy to your heart's content how you as a wretched sinner, can ever be brought into a relationship with a holy God. Christ to you is that messenger of the covenant. Let this assure your heart. Let this comfort your soul. Upon what do you base your relationship with God? Upon Christ. Take him away and you look around and all you see are filthy rags. You've got nothing without him. You've got no relationship. You have no covenant. But so much in the Old Testament was shrouded in the types and shadows that abounded. Who's going to make it plain? Who's going to show us how it's done? Who's going to actually do it and establish the covenant and seal it with his blood? Christ is. He's the messenger of the covenant and he alone Bears the answer to the question, how can God recover fallen man? The greatest conundrum in the history of the world. Christ is the answer, the messenger of the covenant. Come then, fourthly, to the effect of his coming. The effect of his coming. Naively, the Jews thought that the coming of Christ would solve all their problems. Because they externalized all the problems. The problems were God hadn't yet blessed them. They were doing all right. The problems were they had enemies all around. The problems were not of their making. 
And to them, the coming of Christ was something they desired. He is, as it's said here, the Lord whom ye seek, whom ye delight in. These are slightly ironical terms. They weren't spiritually delighting in the thought of Christ's coming. It was an external thing for them. They thought the Messiah would come and would sweep away all their enemies and exalt and promote the Jews. Give them their place that they deserve. Fix all that was wrong in the world on the outside. Must have been quite a shock to be faced with the opening words of verse 2. Who may abide the day of his coming? The idea of being able to cope with the coming of Christ. The idea of being able to stand before him. And the question of it had never occurred to them. Never once entered their head to doubt that it would be good for them and they'd be happy. Of course they would be happy. They were Jews. They were the people of God, the chosen ones. But they are challenged with the refining work of the Lord, the effect of his coming. And we can look back at the Jews and sort of shake our heads a certain sadness. How could they not... See, the, the, the need for their own lives to, to be get, get themselves into the houses in order. But friends, we look at the second coming of Christ. We long for the second coming of Christ. Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. But it will come with the absolute destruction of all your sins are you ready for that surely this is the time to be seeking the relentless cutting away of the sins of our lives if we really want Christ to come if we really want to be there in the day when he says all that sin I'm going to cut it out of your life how do we live now? Look at what is said about the effect of Christ's coming. It's a washing away of their sins. He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. That washing away of the filthiness. Where is that in our lives? This is what Christ is promised to bring when he would come. The purging of their hearts and lives. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. The effect of his coming would certainly be this, to refine his people, to put them through the fire so that they might come forth as gold. And so the goldsmith sits down in front of the furnace. And the ore is thrust into the heat. And the ore rises in temperature and it begins to melt. And the dross begins to come to the surface and burn away. And it is kept in the heat because there is dross required to be burnt. And he, the goldsmith sits down 
not because he is idle, but because it is his job to keep an eye upon the gold that is being refined in the furnace until all the dross is gone and the metal is pure. Now no smith would leave the metal there once all the dross is gone. Then he'll take it out straight away. And then he'll be able to see in the pure metal a reflection of his own face. But not till then. He will not take it out until that happens. And so this Messiah, this Christ whom ye seek, the Lord, will come suddenly to his temple as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. What else was the effect of his coming? The rendering acceptable of all their acts of worship. That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. What do the complaints be? That the offerings have been half-hearted, lackluster, the poorest of the flock. But the coming of the messenger of the covenant would have this effect. That they might offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. What makes our worship acceptable is that Christ has come and we rest upon him. It is his work. It is the effect of his coming to render acceptable this very act of worship tonight. Or we have nothing. But it's not just the worship that is rendered acceptable. There's the, the person. There's a restoration of divine pleasure and favor in their worship then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. There is this. In the covenant there is a restored relationship with God. God takes pleasure in the stones of Jerusalem. We are lively stones built up on house unto the Lord. And so the Lord takes pleasure in his people because of what Christ has done and is doing still. Notice the swift ruthlessness of the standard of righteousness. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. What happens with the coming of Christ it's not that his people get off scot-free and all the enemies are judged. But that judgment must begin at the house of God. This is where it begins. And this goes on. It has gone on since Messiah came. It still is part of the life of the church. The church is still facing refinement. It's still being judged according to the law of God. That is her standard. It has not dropped it has not been set aside. 
still being put through the furnace, still being purred of sins of all kinds. And when you see the church put through the fire, what does it tell you? It tells you that the refiner is working. And the messenger of the covenant has come. And that the smith is watching carefully his gold. Till he see his face, his own image, more clearly in the gold of his people. Till the bride hath made herself ready. And what happens at that point? Then he will come again. Then the second coming of Christ. He will come then in judgment upon his enemies and in vindication of his church. And that's the coming that Malachi sets before the people of God in this section. It's not, if you like, just a a prophecy regarding the narrow time frame of the first coming of Christ. It doesn't end with his ascension. That's not what Malachi is seeing through the lens of prophecy. He is seeing the coming of Christ as the king of the church, as the messenger of the covenant, by which he will refine his church. And when that is done, well, the day of Christ, as it were, will come to its close. The whole of the New Testament period will have been concluded. His judgments and work, his judgment work, will be all done. And we will still not have been consumed. Though he will have judged his church throughout all the thousands of years since he has come and whatever years that are left yet until he comes again. I think what will be left of us will be gone, will be ruined. But I am the Lord. Now, explicitly, using the full name of God, Jehovah. Now, Lord, in capitals, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You'll go in the fire. You'll face trials. But it's me who's doing it. I won't change. I'll be watching. I'll be guarding. I'll be keeping. I'll be bringing you forth as gold. For my own purposes. Remember. That I love you. Remember. That I am coming. Again. And you will not be destroyed. The messenger of the covenant has established the relationship. It cannot be undone. Christ is returning. And in the meantime, Christ is working to refine his church, to make her just exactly the way he wants her to be, so that on that last day she is perfect, spotless, beautiful. On that last day, Satan himself will have to shut his mouth and will find nothing not in the church of Christ nor in one of her stones one of her people not one of you who love the Lord here tonight he will find nothing to accuse you of why? because the messenger of the covenant has come 
and is refining you here and now in this life so that he will present you faultless at the last day. May he bless his word. Let us pray.